Welcome, welcome everybody to the Feast and Famine podcast featuring uh, myself, Wolf of Tin Street, and Pride. Pride, how are you doing? Good, happy to be here. Excited to talk about the new set and uh, you go on with our podcast. Yes, hopefully this week I will be competent enough to actually properly hit the record button because last week we did a cast and unfortunately... It did not record. So that is my fault, everyone. I apologize for robbing you of that. But uh, this week, I think we've got it going. What do you think, Brad? Here's hoping. <laughs> That's the best answer I think I could get after that intro. So we have first up on our list, on the docket, our specs this week. So we've gotten a lot of spoilers out of Baldur's Gate. And I know you you just absolutely love those spoilers. So I'll let you just lead into those specs. Uh, yeah, so... I, I think it's fair to say that a lot of people are feeling like the set has opened up with kind of a whimper instead of a bang. And I certainly agree to put it mildly. So thus far, it's like we haven't seen any of those big exciting cards like we saw back with the original Commander Legends. It's unfortunately, in my opinion, like uh, I w- we were kind of chatting about this earlier, but I feel like the biggest mistake they made was leading too heavily on Legends. Just because players on average are only going to be building, say, one or two EDH decks a year, even for an EDH driven set, that means there's not going to be much excitement driven by new commanders just because odds are you're seeing the card and it's like, that's cool, but I'm not going to build it. So I don't care. And so if the first 30 kind of spoilers are all commanders, it's just 30 cards. No one cares about for the most part. And so I, I really don't think wizards uh, made a wise decision by leaning so heavily into that aspect of it. And I do think I, I'm hoping that at least in the coming days, we'll start to see more cards like, the Jeweled Lotus, the Opposition Agent, the Jessica's Will, these kind of staples that we'll see play in the 99, because just power, there are some powerful commanders and whatnot, but they're really just not going to do it for most people. I'm not sure how you feel about that kind of stuff. No, no, I, I was actually curious because I got a, is, is this, because it kind of feels like a seed set, right? Like where they introduce a bunch of legends that they could potentially rip off of and support, you know, down the lines. I, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't know. I don't feel like I have enough contextual knowledge to properly say yes or no on that. But what are your thoughts on that potential? Uh, it certainly can see, like, we know that 2XM2 is coming out, mm-hmm. like, in a couple weeks. I think spoilers start in, like, on the 6th of June, so just in a couple weeks here. And so that's going to be, obviously, a very EDH-focused set. And we've lo- we've already have um, confirmation based on Amazon that for Dominaria, the Brothers War... Every pack is going to have, again, two foil legends. So still a big EDH focus coming up. And so I I think you're right where it's like, they're just kind of laying the groundwork where some more EDH stuff to come. Um, And when that happens for me, it's like what I usually do is in terms of specs, it's really hard when there's say like 30 new legends to actually pick a spec and go in on it because who's going to be the winner, right? Like which deck are people actually going to build and play? And that's where the, uh, like the newspaper really helps just because you can see what's draining, what's selling, what's moving, because ultimately it's like, yeah, odds are all these cards for all, or all these specs for all these commanders aren't going to sell because there's just not enough money to go around, right? People are going to pick rally around the ones they actually care about. And then just the others will just bite the dust. Even if the spec is quote unquote good, like there's, it is good fundamentals. Unfortunately, it just loses out to being the less interesting option of five or six. So that's, that's definitely something to watch out for, especially like if, if things don't improve over the coming days, until we kind of see more of the winners or losers, specking on individual commanders or cards is going to be a little rougher than usual. Yeah, no, I can't. Yeah, I can't be more in agreement. Specking on commanders is is like the most dangerous. Uh, actually, that's not true. 
Uh, it's the most dangerous, actual, consistent strategy you can have. I think that's the best way to phrase it. Uh, so don't do that, please. We do have another segment coming up here, which is usually going to be last week's mentions. Now, obviously, because we didn't record last week, apologies again. I'm going to ask Pride to repeat what he said last week. Although, actually, I think what we mentioned in our very first cast actually has aged quite well. So if you're willing, will you will you take it away and do a, a recap of the, of the specs we called on our first cast? Sure, and I, I don't think it's necessary to say go over all of them, but one thing to note yeah. is that we have worlds, so like the Magic World Championship coming up in uh, just over a day at this point, and they've already released the deck lists, and so the two formats are Historic and Standard, and there are two dominant decks in either format. In Historic, it's Is It Phoenix, and in Standard, it's like Esper Midrange. And so originally, like we talked about how a lot of the Phoenix cards were moving, and even though Historic, it's not a paper format, let's be clear, like it's not the Pioneer, this is Historic, this is a fake MTG Arena format, it's still close enough to Pioneer, and the Phoenix deck is still good in Pioneer, that when people log on and see the World Championships and see just Phoenix dominating, which it will because it's it's something like um, 40% <laughs> of the format, the Phoenix card should do well. So we called Phoenix, we called Thing in the Ice, we called the like Storm Carved Coast, we called Expressive Iteration, right? Just all the four of us in the deck, just the, the mainstays, the cards you know and love. Obviously, Ledger Shredder, New Edition, um, going to be big, powerful, like, uh, you know, just new looting two drop, right? So that's going to bolster up that format or that, that archetype. And again, that was a card we called in the first cast. And so it, essentially, again, it's just all those cards should see some nice growth. And then moving over to Standard, again, uh, we were uh, like, or at least we were calling cards like Rafine Scheming Seer and Tenacious Underdog, just uh, like these new basically additions to this powerful new sort of um, Esper Tokens mid-range deck. It's really more of a black-white tokens deck that just splashes blue for a couple of mythics and a, like a removal spell or two. And it's just a lot of aggressive tokens, big powerful two drop in Tenacious Underdog, very powerful mythic in Rafine Scheming Seer, and just really good at grinding out Grinding out games against anything, really, aggro decks, mid-range decks, control decks, it just kind of stomps the field. I think it's 20 or 25% of the entire metagame at this point. And so wow. those are just going to be the two decks to watch out for, and everything in them, especially like the four of new cards and mythics, they should do well. Yeah. No, for sure, for sure. I mean, we... <laughs> I apologize for everyone again. I was, a, I was a week late on editing that cast and getting it out and... At this point, you know, it's like, well, they moved then when they moved, and uh, you know, that is what it is. But you have any thoughts before I move on to my my uh, scheduled rant of the market review? Sure, I guess just before moving on, a card that we didn't really, <laughs> or a couple of cards, I guess I'll mention that we didn't really cover. Um, yeah. Unlicensed Hearse, like this was a card, it, it was hyped very early on the standard format. I personally didn't see much there just because this is a two mana artifact. You can tap it to remove two cards in a graveyard from the game. And then it's also a, a vehicle where you can crew it for two power. And then it becomes a creature with power toughness equal to the total number of cards it's removed. And, uh, you know, from a power to, or say, sorry, from a cost to um, removal ratio, it's a bad way of putting mm -hmm. it. But basically when you compare it to cards like Tormod's Crypt, which removes the graveyard for zero mana, it, it's nothing impressive, right? Because it's two mana, it's only two cards at a time. But the mm -hmm. fact that it does scale into like a big threat in the late stages of the game is relevant. And I've seen this smack for 8, 10, 12 damage while yes. also disrupting Phoenix players. Because obviously if decks like, uh, you know, I just mentioned the two best decks, Phoenix and, you know, a, a um, Esper sort of aggro deck that uses recursion spells like Tenacious Underdog, right? So 
Just having unlicensed hearse there to exile cards from your graveyard, deny these kinds of graveyard-based strategies, while also swinging in for real relevant damage in the later stages of the game is doing a lot of work. And so that could be a card that it, it already has moved, but because it's also seen playing Legacy, Modern, Pioneer, like all the real formats, um, it can see even more growth. And then I guess another mythic that I'm starting to see way more often online is um, Titan of the Industry, I think it's called. Uh, I kind of forget. It's just the eight mana mythic from... Yeah, the Titan of Industry, yeah. Titan of Industry, yeah. I, I, again, like, you see this card, and it's like, you know it's never going to make waves in, like, say, <laughs> Legacy or whatever as, like, a reanimation target. But it's like, you know, there's oftentimes there's, like, a, a Carnage Tyrant in Standard where it's like, yeah. there's a six, seven, eight drop that it's like, if it's big enough and good enough and powerful enough, people just play it as the top end. If it doesn't quite get there, it doesn't quite get there, but it turns out it's like, yeah, this one's good enough, and there's enough good ramp between, like, Binding of the Old Gods and a couple other spells where it's like, you can get it out kind of reliably. And so... Mm -hmm. It's not seeing like tons and tons of play, but it's seeing kind of more play than I certainly anticipated. And at three to four bucks, it's a good card to watch because again, because it's a mythic, if it starts seeing play as a three to four of in standard, it, there's room to grow right into something significant. Yeah, the, yeah, the supply, because it's a mythic and because the demand can basically come on very quickly, it can, it can create opportunities, I think for sure. Moving on to my market review one card in specific that i want to bring up is unfortunately it was one i say this unfortunately because it was very popular on reddit for about a month but it really does have legs to follow and i this card is yavamaya cradle of growth out of modern horizons 2 this is the basically the urborg yagmoth's tomb for green and this card is just very consistently selling as the rest of the cards wax and wane, this card is very consistently moving and selling. And this week was actually uh, one of the best-selling cards of all, and definitely the best of the set. And it's just one that I think because of its EDH legs, and as people kind of discover it and realize that it's there, and the way that you can use just certain abilities around it, that's one card. I'm not going to make a habit out of this, but that is just one card that I do want to draw focus to. And I will absolutely admit I own absolutely zero copies of this card. Well, I own two copies for one for EDH and one as a backup because I didn't realize I already had it when I bought it. Moving on from that, I have a couple of graphs to go into. Now, before I do that, Pride, do you have any thoughts on Yavamaya before I move on? Uh, the only thing I'll say for that is one thing I like doing with these kind of cards, and this, this is what I've personally been doing, is there are cards like uh I, and Yavimaya is one that I have done this with like so uh, I like buying these on CT zero a lot because a lot of times when I'm buying Ooh. say from the EU, uh, I like let's say you don't have an arbitrage partner you don't have someone where you have a close relationship with where you can get cards quickly and easily to and from, um what I like to do is like I'll buy a bunch of not right away but like I waited quite a long time but once I see them really start bottoming out in the EU you can acquire a fairly large number of copy of these in from CT0 and again for these kind of cards oftentimes it's either a buy list or direct play where it's like you're not looking to move the cards immediately you're going to wait say three or four months for the buy list to really jack up and the direct premiums to really bump up and so it's okay if they're sitting overseas for say a couple months you're not it doesn't need to be a quick turnaround where so whereas that doesn't say work for say um like a new flavor of the month EDH spec where it's like, 
uh, Chain of Smog is now like this new ultimate combo card. I need them in hand now if I want to get 25 bucks a copy. For this, it's more of a slow burn play. So it's like these are good ones to get from the EU. And so for stuff like, say, Toxic Deluge, I do this a lot. Um, the new swords, like Sword of Hearth and Home, Yabimea, uh, Cradle of Growth. These are all cards that it's like, I just like looking on CT0 and when I see like really bombed out bricks that are, you know, re really, I guess, below the market cost. It's like you can just buy them and have them sit there. And then three or four months later, you get a package and you realize it's like, wow, I was buying these at basically half off versus what they're selling for now. And so I recommend that to people who are kind of looking to get in the spec game and maybe don't have those kinds of connections already. That's a great point to, to, to make. And honestly, I actually think I have a fair bit of cards sitting with CTO that I've forgotten about. And that's a really nice feature that they do offer. So I do, I, re I really do like that call out because it is very uh, important, but also so I would call out Yavamaya as being more of a, a medium to long-term, but what you actually mentioned with CTO is treating it as an immediate opportunity, right? No, 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 sorry. Like I, I don't use it. I, like I'm saying like for stuff that I need to move quickly, like a new flavor of the month spec, I don't usually use CT zero. For this kind of stuff, it's like I have been buying like, cause this is one I literally buy on gotcha. Yavamaya. I bought them cheap. For Swords of Hearth and Home, I bought them cheap. For Toxic Deluge, I bought them cheap. Just because I know, it's like, I plan this to be a slow burn. I plan these to be mostly buy lists, but it's like, at the day of, it's like, it's the juice isn't worth the squeeze. But I know <laughs> four months from now. And so that's kind of what, uh, I, I do mean it more of as a slow burn, not as like an immediate flip. Yeah. I love that you use the juice isn't worth the squeeze. That's the, the actual phrase that I was brought in run into the working force like yeah that's great <laughs> so it's relatable for me but um no i couldn't agree more it, it is definitely more of a, a slow grower and it's one that definitely if you can spot cheap is one to stockpile and i think it will will basically gain well and those are the cards that i generally try to to move in on but moving forward from there there's there's a graph that I think I might actually make a very regular occurrence of this cast just because I like it. I like the the progressive nature of it. And that is looking at sets and standard and just looking at how they're selling on TCG player. And I've linked this in the band chat if anybody's in here um, or if anybody wants to come back, you can definitely look at it. And it's just looking at how sets are selling on TCG player. And something that is fascinating to me and pride please pull me out because i'm about to get very nerdy if i go too far but uh, the week before a set releases there is always a spike and then there's a three-week period so you have the first week the the week before pre-release then you have pre-release and then you have the actual release and what we see in this graph is that in that third week back from re er, release how do I properly phrase I would say five? to think of it like a spaceship where you have a little jump and then you have a, you know, you have the fuselage, you have basically the two engines and the fuselage, right? So yeah. uh, if you kind of imagine that in your head, that's kind of what the, <laughs> the overall sales of a new set looks like. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> when a set is about to come out, uh there is a massive interest in the set and basically people rush out to buy it and then there is a bit of a lull and then it completely shoots off into the atmosphere now we saw this with crimson vow we saw it with uh neon dynasty and we saw it with capenna 
Now, the degree to which we see it is really, really important because this is how we see how one set affects another. Uh, in my opinion, this is definitely my opinion, because with uh, Midnight Hunt, you don't really see that uh, preset release uh, excitement. There was no spike there like you see with everything else that we've seen so far in Standard. Uh, but with Crimson Vow, you see massive excitement before, and basically as soon as players actually started playing with it, they were like, oh, we don't really like this set, which is not what you want from a Watsi perspective, I would imagine, but it's what we see from the sales data. But with Neon Dynasty, it absolutely exploded. They saw 150Ks worth for that week uh, of sales, and then when the set actually came out, it's shot up to 300K. And what's really interesting is that when we get to Capenna, Capenna absolutely mirrors the behavior of Kamigawa. So in my opinion, this, this just mirrors new customer behavior. Basically, Kamigawa was so successful that it actually kept buyers around and uh, basically replicated the pattern of their behavior with, uh, we're going to bet on it beforehand and after. Obviously, it wasn't to the same degree, but it's something that I find very nerdy and fascinating and something that I just want to call out. Uh, what are your thoughts, Bride? I, I, no, I, I definitely agree. And I do think it's important to note that it's a lot of times, uh, say, you can ride the coattails of something that's more successful, right? Like if a, yeah. if, a, if a comedian comes on and just absolutely nails it, then you're probably much more willing <laughs> to laugh at the next guy comes on, even if he's kind of bomby or, you know, not very yeah. good, right? It's the same sort of thing. Like if you have a home run magic set, you get so many people excited about the game. They're excited to play. They're having fun. They're going to events. They're playing standard. They're going to FNMs. They're pulling out EDH decks. They're building new ones. And so when the next set drops, that excitement is still there and present and it continues on. And, you know, you bent the next set benefits regardless of whether it's merited or not. Uh, just from mm -hmm. the fact that, say, the previous set was so hyped and so well received and doing so well. Yeah. And, and so for me, the next question that I want to ask, and I truly don't know how to properly investigate, but how does Capenna, the streets of New Capenna, how does it compare to Crimson Vow? Because if you look at the graph that I'm looking at, Crimson Vow actually held its own. It did fine. It wasn't a spectacular set, but it, it did okay. But how do we compare it to a set that follows in the coattails of a great one, Neon Dynasty? And that's something that's got me very excited. Uh, you guys will definitely hear me talking about this at some point, I'm sure. But that's that's what this graph basically just makes me so excited to look at the relationship between those two and and just look into that uh, nerdy nerdy commentary. But personally, I think that unfortunately one of the big issues with streets of new capenna is outside of the triomes ledger shredder and then a couple of mythics like bootleggers yep. uh, stash and i guess there's also giada there's professional facebreaker and then a mixed list right that's a maybe 10 cards that i've listed and there's demand for those but overall the set is very low power very weak and we're we're at the point we're already at we're seeing a point where just the customer base isn't there for acquiring new cards like People have the couple that they care about. Triumphs will still see decent demand, but everything else is starting to really fall off. And supply just continues to flood into the market. Demand has just fell off a cliff. And I, I'm really worried about Streets of New Capenna single prices in the, like, say, the coming futures. I don't think it's, you know, I think it's going to be a bloodbath race to the bottom on almost everything other than kind of those top 10 cards that we previously listed. 
um, and what that means for moving into the next set, I guess, is that if the next set, you know, unless there, we start to see some more juicy spoilers, could be a bit of a letdown. See, that's something I... God damn. That, that's something I hadn't even actually thought of. The fact that the amount of sealed sold for New Capenna actually will depress the single sales long-term because it did not... Basically, in comparison to a normal set, it sold way more sealed off the heels. Yeah, that didn't even occur to me. That's yeah, good point, man. <laughs> and I guess for like just for a financial standpoint, it means like uh, say CBBs, for example, not a good buy. Like they're going to be say 130 on Amazon at some point in the near future. So if you were looking to say get CBBs of SNC, well, you you're probably gonna get them for you know 50 bucks less in a couple months here. So uh, if you want them at all, keep waiting, I guess. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and move on to another segment now. If I was bringing the room down before, hopefully this won't be too bad. But I wanted to focus on the difficulties, essentially, of speculating on singles cards. So. There is a reason why LGSs and people who've been in the space basically point at singles and say, you can't really rely on singles for your business model. And it's very obvious for anybody who's started a business around it. But that is because there are so few cards that reliably drive revenue. And anything that reliably drives revenue drives profit that you can't really rely on singles as a business model. And I, I don't know, I took it to heart and because I had the data I wanted to look. And so I've been tracking data since September of 2021, essentially. And there are under 20 cards that have consistently driven over 10K worth of revenue per month. Now, that's a really low number from an overall, from an overarching industry perspective. That means everybody in this sphere is competing for basically 10 to um let's see let's look reliably about 20 grand worth of revenue every week that makes this a very very competitive landscape which i think we largely all who who are competing in this industry can see and um there are just particular cards to to shout out because you know if you are actually a reliable card that drives revenue we can expect to see a spike around November because of Black Friday, but if you're actually able to retain that sustained demand, that makes you probably the most ideal cards to go after if you're able to buy at a basically a good margin and then resell. Uh, but there are so few that it kind of <laughs> it reflects on the industry as a whole, but I do want to call them out for those who are, are looking uh, at this industry and trying to, to basically get in and I'll point out Mana Crypt is probably the best card. If that card doesn't get reprinted in the next set, I will be flabbergasted at Watsi's blindness to the overall market. Mana Crypt is just such a powerhouse in sales. It's just insane. And it's so consistently selling above 10K a month in terms of what that card is worth. It's it's just absolutely insane. Um, the other one, obviously, I wanted to make sure this one was in my graph. Uh, this is Baseju who endures. This is, uh, this is a card who shot out of the gates. It sold almost $26,000 in single sales alone. But the important thing that I want to draw here, and I could compare this to Soren of the Mirthless, and I think this is going to be a consistent trend from Watsi, is it sells 25 to 30K on its own the week of release, but then it plummets the second week to 13,000. This is very clearly a card which is meant to drive 
the set and we can see it very clearly. They know what they're doing and it's driving the set sales. So um, that's the second card. And uh, the other card would be Ragavan Noble Pilfer. I think that's a surprise to nobody. You're probably used to that one by now. Uh, and perhaps most importantly, Flooded Strand has been just floating at the basement of all of these cards. Everybody always wants Flooded Strand. But I've mentioned that in prior podcasts that fetch lands really draw value and there's a number of, of fetch lands on this graph. Um, but I think I've spoken for long enough. What do you think, Pride? No, I certainly agree. And I, I know it's like I personally say I couldn't make a living doing what I do, doing the speculation I do. If, to me, this is kind of just I know that I can throw a couple, like uh, it's usually a couple grand a month that will beat the market, say beat throwing in ETFs, which is what I generally do. And it's like, this is just, but I know it's like, say <laughs> if I were trying to throw a uh, hundred thousand dollars at this, I couldn't because I couldn't do, I, there's just the money isn't there, I guess the revenue isn't there. So on a smaller scale for smaller returns or, or for higher returns, but on a, like um, a low market cap, I guess we'll say, this kind of stuff works, but it's like, could you make a live, you know, it's, it's difficult to make a good living, I guess, doing the kind of single speculation game. You really got to be yeah. looking into sealed and having a storefront or having some kind yes. of like taking advantage of say, um, like the WhatsApp or the, um, TikTok, Facebook kind of thing, like even like something more interactive where you have say uh subscriber revenue, Patreon revenue, right? Like, unless you're uh, I guess extracting uh, unless you have multiple revenue streams in the MPG sphere or something on a bigger scale like an actual LGS you're just not going to make it just kind of flipping singles yeah and that's true and honestly the greatest value that I am personally uh, deriving from graphs like these is really what do people buy when sales and promotions occur because when I look at Black Friday and I look at any time that TCG player drives a sale they're training their consumers basically to buy what they want. They're giving them an excuse to buy what they want. And that is the most fascinating thing for me to delve into. I'm not going to talk about it on this cast, but that is one that I've probably written over a half dozen scripts trying to investigate. So, yeah. With that said, my data analytical segment is over. Pride, is there anything you'd like to discuss? Yeah, I wouldn't mind going over some of the, uh, just some of the cards from Commander of Legends Baldur's Gate. Like, again, I, what I was mentioning is at some point, at this point, it's hard to pick winners and losers and know really what's going to happen. But I, I still find it's fun to, I guess, either talk about specs or be aware of specs. So that way, if they do start moving or you see some of the newspaper and you're curious about it, it maybe makes a little bit more sense and it might help your decision to go in on something or not. So... I figure it could be fun just to talk over at least some of the specs that I've been considering or looking at or watching ever since um, just basically the spoiler started. Uh, so, and for something like this, unfortunately, it's like, because it's just so many different commanders, um, I don't know if it's worth it to read over every single card and every single ability and you go too in depth just because I'd rather just kind of fire off a bunch of different specs for people to think about. And again, just if they start moving, at least you know why. So does that sound good to you? Yeah, that sounds great. Shoot. Okay. Um, well, one of the, I guess on the first day there was a card uh, spec. It's like a, it's kind of like the Beamtown Bullies. It's like John Erroneous or uh, uh, John Erenicus. Erenicus. Yeah, Shattered mm -hmm. One. And this is a card that basically gives creatures to your opponent and forces them to attack, so it goads them. So very much in the same vein as Beamtown Bullies. 
and some of the cards like a hell carver demon even blade reaper phyrexian negator all these cards with like just horrendous drawbacks when they attack or, or dealt damage or whatnot are starting to move because of it um again are you going to run and buy all these cards not necessarily but just again if john arenicus uh, starts to see a lot more play or starts to get hyped up or people actually build the deck all those kind of beam bully specs just double dip into a second commander which is very nice to see so again if you're in two popular commander decks that's a lot better than being in one so certainly things to watch uh, another couple that were powerful commanders that were spoiled recently there was a mahadi emporium master this is a Rakdos commander, and he's a 3-mana three 3-3, three, and the Beam Rancep, you create a treasure for each creature that died this turn. Very powerful effect, very good in all those aristocrat-style decks. Well, so, oh, pardon me for... No, 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 pardon me, I just... Will, will that... Because you mentioned earlier, there's so many good like, commander cards coming out of the set. Will, will a card like that actually drive, like, treasure demand? Because there's so many new things coming out. I'm just curious. Is it like an overall, like, will it actually bring the theme from a financial aspect or even from a playability aspect? Will it actually pull it up? It's really, and again, that's what I was kind of prefacing this for. It's really prefacing this, sorry. It's really hard to say. Like, I don't know what's going to win or lose. I don't know what's actually going to sell. But it's mostly just like, I like to be aware of, like, to me, this to me is a very powerful card. Like, there are some very powerful cards here. And it's like those that stand out to me as, if anything's going to drive sales, it's probably something really good, right? It's just not going to be the, the sea of marginal nonsense. Uh -huh. It'll be the card that screams like, wait, this three mana card is making me like eight mana turn. Like, that's awesome. So, I, I, I and again, it's not that I'm running out and buying these, but it's mostly just that I like to be aware of what might move. And then if it starts moving, I can jump in on it because I already understand why it's moving and what the market will be, what the demand will be. And just so it's like i'm it's more so preparing yourself than actually say running out and buying these cards today if that makes sense no that makes total sense uh especially coming from somebody who very rarely if ever understands the why i totally get that and i was able to relate to that i was like i wish i knew that right and for this one i guess the only thing i was really looking at was a card that popped earlier was tombstone stairwell which is a reserveless card that's, it basically just makes uh, a ton of creatures for each player that die every turn. It just creates a bunch of skeletons for each card in your graveyard, each card in each player's graveyard, I should say. And those creatures die at end of turn. So it's kind of the thing where if you're killing everyone's creatures and then you're creating another 20 creatures that die every turn, it's just kind of just this absolutely insane mana engine. And if that card starts moving again, because it's just the best thing to be doing in this sort of like aristocrats death matter style deck, because it's reserve list and because people are aware of it, it can, you know, it might pop off pretty high essentially. So am I running and buying these? No, I personally own zero copies unless I already have some from, you know, previous specs. Mm -hmm. But if it starts moving, you know, I'll know why. And I certainly won't be shy to jump in on them because this is a very powerful commander and that's a very powerful card in that deck. Gotcha. So it feels like this this upcoming set, the the Baldur's Gate, is very much at least you know I'll put my opinion on it. It feels like a weak set. Would you Would you agree? And just in terms of oh, financial absolutely. value, I think okay. so far is very underwhelming from a financial perspective in terms of both cards in this set and cards to spec on for commanders in the set. So it'll be very curious to see how it basically sells on the open market because it could potentially also you know up and off the heels of both Neon Dynasty and Capenna selling well. So it'll be interesting to see. I'm curious to see what their strategy is, to be honest with you. But um, 
yeah, <laughs> this is what the set is. Is there anything else you wanna you wanna add in before we we close out for the night? Yeah, I guess just like um, Elminster, he's a planeswalker in the set who can be your commander. Ooh, he's a scry so matters card. Sorry, sorry, you you mentioned it really fast. What was the name of that card? Elminster. Elminster. Oh yes, 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 yes. The the uh, Azorius one. It's like yeah. Gandalf. Yeah. Yes, he looks sexy. Yes. Uh, oh yeah. Uh... <laughs> This is a card that's right now selling as like, I think it is the highest pre-sale value of like any regular car in the set, which implies to me that people uh, are like it or are interested in it. And because it's a Scry Matters card, there are a lot of just like uh, car, like old powerful cards like Mystic Speculation from the original Time Spiral that, you know, they've won printing, they've never been reprinted. They were printed at a time when print runs were low. These kind of cards can move quite a bit in response to, say, a new Scry Matters Commander just coming into prominence. So it's pretty easy just to open up Gatherer type Scry and see what pops up. But certainly cards like Mystic Speculation are worth looking into if this card does take off. Um, the other card I was looking at is there was one that was just spoiled today. It's um it's a uh, Alondo the Seer. And this is a Simic card. It's, it's, it has a very convoluted text box, but basically you tap it to draw a card and put uh, time counters on it like you're suspending it. And then you remove time counters from every other card with time counters on it you own in exile. So it, it's kind of this weird sort of like Joyra of the Gitu style card where it's like you exile cards and then by continuing to exile more cards, you cast the cards at the back of the queue, if that makes sense. And they get time counters equal to their casting cost. So it's like if you're just removing one or two drops, they come into play pretty quickly. But if you're removing like six drops, it takes a long, long time. Um, mm -hmm. But I actually think this card is very powerful just because it does two things that are very easy to break. And that's cheating on cards and cheating on mana. So this does both for free. Like So for zero mana, it's just tap, draw a card and basically cast it for free. Again, I'm, I'm it's that's a hyperbolic way of describing oh, yeah. it. But... That is ultimately what it's trying to do. And when you start pairing this with like really cheap untap effects, because there are like one mana cards that like untap a creature you control, draw scroll a card. Rack. Not just scroll rack, but um, I'm thinking even cards like, um, there are cards like Free from the Real and uh, Pemmin's Aura, which just allow you to pay one mana to untap a creature. Well, with a card like El Rundo, that's, you know, draw a card and reduce the cost of all, all spells you've exiled by one. So it, it kind of makes like every mana into like draw a card, cast a spell, which is just utterly insane. And because you don't have to spend all your mana doing this, you can just do it a couple times. You can hold up a bunch of permission with your other mana and protection effects like heroic intervention and um, just a lot of, you know, protection spells. Like I see this actually as a really, really powerful grindy sort of either storm card or value engine or just like really just broken enabler just because the fact it draws cars and casts them for free is just so broken. Like I, I just know this card will be very, very good. And so I'm interested in all the cool things it can be doing. And I'm just looking at the most broken cards in the deck, which will be again, powerful on tap effects, like maybe even intruder alarm, like the, um, mm -hmm. which has yeah. a couple printings at this point, but even the, um, the secret layer, that's the word I'm looking for. Like there's not many copies on TCG. There's only like 19 or 20. And so if that card starts moving, it can very easily go from say 20 to 30 or 40 or whatever. So it's definitely a card to watch. And, but mainly the untap effects, which are Pemmin's Aura and Free from the Real, I think are just like utterly insane with this card. And so I'm definitely watching those. 
No, it's it's curious just because when you said he's a grindy commander, the first thing I thought when I looked at his his first ability was like, oh, he's he's a burst commander, essentially, right? Like you've got to be able to chain together a lot of uh, spells to get him going. But I'm not as good a player as you, so it's curious to as I think about it. I was like, oh no, it makes sense. Basically, every turn he gives you a chance to basically go nuts, right? Yeah, and I think people underestimate how a lot of people seem to think it takes a long time for this card to get going, but there are a lot of like, I don't know if you, I know you're kind of a newer player, but twiddle effects, which is just one mana tap, run tap, target permanent. Well, mm. when this card, uh, like this card turns twiddle effects into not only draw spells, but like dark rituals too. And there are a lot of like cheap twiddle effects at one and two mana, right? Because they don't just either untap creatures or like untapped permanence or things like that, like just things like Vitalize and Benefactor's Draught and Cerulean Wisps and Twiddle itself. And there's so many cheap cards that can basically let you untap this a lot. And when this card is tapping or untapping two, three, four times a turn, like it just gets wildly insane considering the fact that you're also holding up permission for counter spells and protection. Like I, I think people yeah. grossly underestimate how broken this card is just because they're thinking like it'll tap and untap once a turn. And it's like, no, you don't understand. There's like 20 cards that tap or untap it for one or two mana. This card is just going to do like utterly bonkers things the first turn you untap with it. It's it's just insane. So so have we found a diamond in the rough here, essentially? I, I just, I don't think people understand how powerful this card is. Like, I guarantee you people are looking at this because they think the card, you know, oh, the cards don't get suspended, so the counters aren't removed normally. They're only removed when he himself taps. And the first card you remove, the count you don't remove a counter from it. So say the first like if you remove a one mana cost spell with this, it doesn't get cast immediately. You have to remove another spell with it, then that counter gets removed. And so people are looking at these and thinking, oh, this card isn't actually that great. But it's because they're all thinking these cards are coming down like say two, three, four turns after you cast them. They're not thinking about the fact that it's actually pretty easy to create scenarios where, especially if you have a couple cheap untappers like a Fedo Alchemist and whatnot, and um Quest of Renewal, like all these kinds of awakening effects that untap creatures and lands on other players' turns. Like this is a creature that's just going to be casting three, four, five, sometimes even your entire deck the turn after you untap with it. And just people don't realize like how many broken enablers there are out there <laughs> once the deck starts to get some optimization and real looking yeah. at. So I, I just think people should don't discount this card and don't think of it like just any old just Simic grind engine because this can do some really busted stuff. Yeah, so basically, if you're watching this set and you're looking for a card, basically, just make sure you're, you're keeping your eye on Elminster. And I feel like after the description you just gave, that uh, the fact that it can be your commander only augments that, right? Because I don't think I heard you mention that once. Yeah, just to be clear, this is Alundo, the Seer, not Elminster. I do think Elminster oh, gotcha. will be popular, but just, uh, yeah, just so there's no confusion. But yeah, sorry, I if I didn't clarify, that's a legendary creature who can be your commander. Gotcha. And in two colors that are very good at protecting commanders, both blue and, I mean, obviously white and white and uh, blue would have been better, but green and blue gives you access to a much better suite of creatures and untap effects. So I, I definitely think this is going to be a card to watch out for. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. Do you have anything else to mention before we uh, close up here? Uh, I guess like uh, there's quite a few the Gates Matters cards in the set are looking very, very good. And, you know, we already mentioned Maze's End, and it's probably popped two or three times already just between all the Gates cards. So I'm not just saying necessarily for uh, that particular card. But Gates themselves are looking like they could 
be moved to more of like an evergreen sort of um, mana base where you can very easily incorporate them into any sort of five color mana base just to get some additional value and just take advantage of cards like say Guild Summit and Gates of Blaze and even some of the creatures like just to have like basically overpowered or undercosted spells just due to the fact that you're using gates and the opportunity cost is becoming so low because now there's a gate that like it produces all five colors of mana that makes your gates come into play untapped and so even if you're not going for mazes and like just ignore ignore the cheesy alternate win altogether just having gates in your deck i think will be more common and say like five color shrine decks and five color goals decks and what nino goals is banning dh now but it's an alternative color win condition decks. right that's that's more sustainable now right yeah or not even just a win condition even just like another like kind of value engine of some sort because but and even just like gates and field of the dead too like just I, I see these kinds of things becoming more popular because there's also now there's a like a Nykthos for gates or Cabal Coffers is maybe a better way to put it for gates. So it's just like if you're already playing like three or four or five colors or whatnot, you, you're just going to want to add these as like another sort of like layer of complexity and power that doesn't cost much, right? Like versus just playing a regular come into play like um, a dual land or whatnot of some kind you'll just have all these gates that are providing value in other ways. And so I think gates just as a general theme will be cards to watch as like shrines as maybe even more of a long-term thing where they're going to probably keep seeing more and more demand as more and more kind of gates and gate matter stuff gets printed. And so I don't know how much money I've made off of shrines over the course of say the past, say three or four years, but it's a lot. And I could see gates just sort of heading in that direction. Mm-hmm. There is definitely gate love in this set. There's no denying that. That's <laughs> very palpable. Oddly enough, not one that I expected, but it definitely is there. So, what I'll say is, first of all, don't discount this set altogether because, again, I think Wizards they want to lead strong with the Legend theme, which again I don't think was the smart thing to do. It's what they did. I'm not going to harp on it. Move on. <laughs> but this set can easily like it's probably not going to be as good as the original Commander Legends. But there's still a good half of the set left and there's plenty of mythics, there's plenty of rares, there's plenty of ways for the set to kind of generate excitement. So I wouldn't go discounting it entirely. And secondly, there are cards from the set that I'm interested in. There are a couple of green ones. Jahir's Respite, which is a five mana fog that you you basically rampant growth for each creature attacking you. Um, that's the kind of card that I could easily see falling to basically bulk. Like I made so much money off Ink Shield when from the Commander Strixhaven decks mm -hmm. because these fogs, they competitive players look at them and think this card sucks i don't care about it and it falls to nothing and then casual players look at this like this is the greatest card ever printed <laughs> and so i bought a giant big you know brick of ink shields and i think yeah. they're uh selling to ck for like 10 bucks now i sold a bunch of them like at 850 i think it was just to kind of get my double up but i only sold half and it's like i still have the other half sitting in my closet and Jahir's Respite I see being the same thing, whereas if it's if it falls to basically, if it falls cheap enough, I'm I'm going to grab a bunch and I'm going to buy less than the CK at some point from now. Um, but I obviously don't pay like whatever the pre-release prices are. I'm just mm -hmm. saying like, this is a kind of a card to watch out for that will probably go down to nothing and then creep up very quickly after. And there's another one, Monster Manual, which I think is just an amazing card. It's kind of a new really? um, Elvish Piper slash Quicksilver Amulet card. Yeah, I think this card is just nuts. It's, it's like a Quicksilver Amulet where it's a four mana artifact, you cast it, and then for two mana, you can put a creature from your hand into play. So it's got that Elvish Piper, just again, we've mm -hmm. all seen variations of oh, this yeah. card for years. But it's also an adventure where you can, for three mana, mill five cards and put a creature milled this way from your graveyard to your hand. 
So it also doubles as action, like it digs for creatures to cheat into play, which means that early on, if you're just looking to cheat out an Eldrazi or whatever, you can. You can cast this off, you know, turn two rapid growth, turn three play this, turn four, put your deuter into play and keep doing that for the rest of your cards. But later on, it also digs for action or early on it digs for action, right? If you're kind of mm -hmm. light or you don't have anything good to cheat, it finds stuff to cast, which I think like really does set it above the others because normally if you draw the second Quicksilver Amulet or whatnot is worthless. It's just, it does This enables nothing. itself if it's already on the field. Yeah, exactly. And it's so, it, and the other thing it does like where it'll just it, like, it, it also even just putting stuff in your graveyard for like eternal witness effects. And, you know, green is the king of recursion in general, like just general recursion with regrowth and eternal witnesses. So just milling five cards is going to be relevant too. And just for like a lot of the cards that return lands and things like that, like it's, it's a very powerful card. And again, I think this is a card that will be very cheap, very bulk and like overlooked by competitive players, but that EDH players will naturally flock to and just include in every green deck under the sun. And so I, again, I'm going to be looking to buy these very cheap and a very high quantities as a buy list play, but I can definitely like, there will be money to be made off the set, I guess is the point I'm trying to make. Like it's so you know, I mean, it might not be as sexy or spicy as regional commander legends, <laughs> but at some point we'll be going over different specs once we see more of the set. And once we get an idea of what's, what's hot and what's not, but just as a bit of a preview, it's like, there are certainly cars to be made to make money off of once the, um, you know, once we start getting some more, like once the set actually releases and supply starts hitting the market and things start tanking and plummeting. Yeah. I, I, I have comments to make, but I don't think there's anything that I can add to this outside of just the fact the fact that it enables it, it the fact that it enables itself, I think is largely going to be a bit of a moot point, given the fact that it's a four CMC costing and it's three to activate the adventure. But I think everything else you said basically just dismantles any argument I would make against it. And I hate that because I like sounding like the smartest person in the room, but I can't I can't fight that. So no, I like I get the strategy. I respect it. I'll be honest; it's not one that I'm personally going to take, but I see it and I understand it, and it makes sense. And I think it might actually pan out. Again, everything all depends on if it actually uh, if if it starts off expensive. If it starts off five or six bucks, I'm not touching with a ten foot pole. <laughs> it's just how far does the stuff fall? Which yeah. again, I'm just going by based off what I'm used to seeing and what I'm expecting to see, but. If the cards, like, again, we'll discuss more of this once we actually see where the prices land or whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, but for for now, it's like these are kind of, this is the kind of stuff I like eyeing. And this is the kind of plays I like making where it's like, if I see something that I think to be, will be overlooked by the, say, more competitive community and very much appreciated by the more casual community, there's a lot, there's good money to be made, especially in green and especially in EDH. Now, as ever, I, I appreciate you actually walking us through your thought process because I think that more than the the spec itself, honestly, is 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 what's the most fascinating element of that. Um, and that that's me personally, but I think that's something to keep in mind for everybody as we go forward. Are are you uh, are you eyeing anything else before I before I close out here? Because I'm sure folks are are loving this at this point. Uh, that's kind of the only cards I really felt like, or I was making a point to mention. Um, I, I'm sure we'll see others in a couple weeks. Like, it, and I don't even mean that like I'm hiding anything or, you know, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing sinister about it. It's just, again, until we see more of the staples, I guess, like the cards that'll be included in the 99, it's just really tough to want to jump in on commanders themselves because 
picking winners or losers because there's also going to be four commander decks right and the commander decks only have 10 new cards it's mostly reprints what's going to be in them heck if i know so it's just it's still really difficult to start like jumping in on actual specific commander specs at this point mm -hmm. i just like kind of thinking about what i would jump on or if what starts moving like what's the what's the cause essentially what are people eyeballing because if one eventually we will start to see which horses break away from the pack and when that happens, you know, you want to be ready to pounce before it's too late because the windows are getting smaller and smaller. Yeah, no, I do agree. Alrighty, with that, I think we're going to close out our, I believe this is actually the second episode of Feast and Famine. Thank you all for listening. And uh, I hope you tune in next time. Thank you, Brad. Bye, everyone.